Welcome to Blackbird episode number 68. My name is James, and today I am thrilled to bring back to the show Mr. Jacob Winograd. Jacob is, of course, the host of the Daniel 3 Biblical Anarchy podcast, a former guest on this show, and I've been on his show a couple of times as well. Um, so we just wanted to continue the conversation. Um, it has gotten pretty good feedback from the audience. And uh, so, you know, I mean, the audience knows best. In this conversation, we're talking a little bit about politics, a little bit about religion, and we get really personal as well. So I think you're going to enjoy it. Remember, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com, sign up with your email address so that you never miss an episode. And if you are feeling generous or if you just want to get these conversations a little bit early, sign up with a credit card number. For $7 a month or $70 a year, you can get full access to all of my interviews including the pre-show banter and other sort of unedited content uh, that the normal plebs don't get uh, on the free feed. So head once again to blackbirdpodcast.com, sign up with your email address and or a credit card to get all of those benefits. And with that, here is my conversation with Jacob Winograd. Jacob, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining me tonight on this lovely Wednesday. Uh, it is Wednesday. Gosh, I can't keep track of time anymore, dude. Isn't every, it nuts? Every day, yeah, every day blurs together. I just like, Saturday comes and it's just like, I, I think I need to get up and get ready for work. And uh, <laughs> Bree's just like, what are you doing? Get back to bed. What a, so. you're a mechanic, right? Yeah. Um, so do you work like normal Monday through Friday hours or do you have to work weekends or how does that work? I work, uh, supposed to work normal Monday through Friday hours, but, uh, on top of being a mechanic, I'm working in a family business. And, um, of course lately because of the stuff going on in my family with my, uh, dad being in the hospital, I'm kind of having to put in some extra time, which, which sucks. Yeah. But, um, how's it going with your dad? You know, it's, um, I don't want to like get too carried away too soon, but it seems like he's going to pull through. Um, I mean, the doctors give every bit of good news with the caveat of like, you know, uh, it looks like he's doing good, you know, but also keep in mind with COVID, like things can literally change in a day. So yeah. it's, <laughs> it's like, I'm so we're, I don't know, cautiously optimistic is the, uh, um, uh, the, the phrase I'm using right now. Seems like he's starting to pull through, uh, requiring less of the ventilator. Um, mm-hmm. and they're taking him slowly off like all the, because they had him like heavily sedated. They had him on paralytics and stuff um, so that the ventilator could do all the work to help his lungs heal. And he seems to be needing less of that now. And so might be waking up soon, like maybe in the next week. Um, he's, he's already kind of like, he's in a phase, right? Like a, like a, a fog right now, like where he's mm-hmm. starting to open his eyes and he'll track, his, his eyes will track around the room um, and he'll kind of respond. Like someone comes into the room, his eyes will open. But he's not like fully awake either. That's the way, at least that's what they're describing to me. Um, I can't be there because of bullshit reasons. So, uh, you know, everything that I know, I'm told uh, second or third hand. Because sometimes I'm not even on the phone call. I'm just getting information that's repeated to me by my stepmom, who's, you know, not always the best filter. 
Damn, what's the what's the why can't you be there? Is it vaccine vaccine related? I assume it's just uh, their policy that any COVID anyone that's got a COVID case who's in critical condition uh, can't have any any visitors. Oh, geez. Yep. So the hospital that's has insane. a one. The hospital has a one visitor uh, per room policy with anything non COVID related. But if it's COVID related, it's very strict until they're like, if they're in like long term recovery ward after COVID, then they'll allow mm-hmm. visitation, but uh, not before that. I wonder how common that is. Is that do you know? Is that like a is that like a nationwide thing, or is that just happening in your neck of Pennsylvania? I would imagine it's fairly common. Um, wow. Yeah. Which yeah. I mean that's. <laughs> I don't know if you listen to it, and if you haven't, that's fine. I know you've been traveling and stuff, but uh. I I, uh, I definitely bitched a lot about this in my latest episode. Um, not oh good. Not happy. I'll have to, t- I'll have to check it out. Yeah. No. Uh, I mean, I, I I very I very eloquently put it that um, keeping loved ones away when someone is sick is fucking evil. Yeah, that's, that's it really my is. I'm sorry that's, this happened. That's my thesis. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a good thesis. You should nail that to a hospital door or something like that. Right. Yeah, I should. You're fucking evil. And just repeat it. Repeat it. Uh, Ninety. 96 times? 99 times. 99 times, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, happy news. You got to officiate Michael Heiss's wedding, right? Yeah, that was a blast. Um, Tell me about it. First of all, this was on the same weekend as Tom Wood's 2000th episode. So, like, the Liberty community was kind of, you know, torn between, you know, should we go to the Fearless Leaders big event or the Fearless Leaders big event, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I know. And uh, apparently Mike and Tom had been, I guess, going back and forth trying to not have both of these events on the same day, but neither yeah. one could really avoid it. Because, um, yeah. you know, the, the Mises Caucus had like that bash in Virginia the first week of October, um, which was complicating things too. Like there weren't, weren't that many weekends for them to choose from. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, the wedding was a blast. There was a lot of um, it, it, it did kind of, my, my wife was almost like complaining. She was like, I thought we were going to a wedding, not a libertarian convention. Cause that's what <laughs> it felt like. <laughs> so, and what's funny is literally during the wedding, there was an, L, uh, libertarian party, at Pennsylvania board meeting and I'm oh, on the board. Geez. So I had to keep running away from like the reception to go and vote. <laughs> you know, one good thing I'm on the LP of Minnesota's board and I missed our meeting on Monday because we were in Universal Studios, Florida. And uh I still that's got awesome. elected to the yeah, well, I still got elected to the platform and bylaws committee. That's a that's what happens when you don't have a contentious board. I'm very happy where I'm at in Minnesota. Yeah, maybe that, maybe it's that, almost that like yeah, Pennsylvania. The, your punishment for not showing up to meetings is that they give you more shit to do. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean that's true. I, I like the PBC though. Um, I, I feel like like I'm not real big on door knocking and collecting signatures and stuff like that. That's just not really the, really my thing. But uh, yeah, man, if I get to tell people what to do and how to think, that's right up my alley. Um, <laughs> what uh, what was the wedding like? Was it like was it like a Christian wedding or um, more secular? Yeah, so I, don't, I don't know. Why this is, uh, it was more I mean, Christian. You know. I mean, Mike Mike and Emily are not as devout as as I am. Um, mm-hmm. but, but they, you know, Mike's a big fan of like Jordan Peterson. And so his religious views are kind of like similar to that kind of takes more of a union archetypical, uh, approach to religion. Uh, mm-hmm. but he wanted the ceremony to be, you know, kind of like religious, but not like, not too traditional. So he kind of like 
and, and him and I have talked a lot about this stuff and are both big Jordan Peterson fans. So he kind of trusted me to uh, um, kind of like find that right balance, um, mm-hmm. which I think I did a good job. I mean, it was pretty religious. There was a lot of scripture throughout it. Um, but I tried to, you know, his one rule, which I actually appreciated was that I couldn't use uh first Corinthians 13 because that's like, the, <laughs> that's, the, that's the cliche passage that gets used in, in oh every, God. every freaking yeah. wedding. And I was like, no, I'm glad because I actually hate when that passage is used because that passage is not about romantic, like love between a husband and wife. It's, 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 I mean, it's not bad. I'm not saying it, it can't be used, but it's just the fact that that passage is used so much is mm-hmm. it, I don't know, just just to me as a theological nerd, it, it can be kind of annoying. I'm, I'm yeah. that guy in the crowd going, "Well, actually, guys, <laughs> that's not what that passage is about." But okay, you can use it that way. I uh, I DJed a buddy's wedding a few years ago, and his well, his wife, who's a cellist, would not allow Paco Bell's Canon to be played during the ceremony. First, because it was it's cliche, but also because it's got a really boring cello part. And she just hates the song because all it is is just like, I guess, strumming the bow, like, you know, over and over and over again on the same note. So I guess, yeah, keep the cliches out of weddings is probably the moral of the story. The thesis, why don't we nail that to every church? Keep cliches (laughs) out of weddings. Yeah. So, I mean, it was the first time I'd ever officiated one, um, but my dad had officiated a bunch. So it was also kind of a, um, it was really surreal doing it because, like on one hand, I felt honored that Mike had asked me to do it, and already like months in advance, I had been kind of preparing for it. But mm-hmm. then, like with my dad in the hospital and not knowing if he was going to live or not, even throughout that weekend, um, it was kind of like I was doing it as kind of a um, like a homage to my dad. You know sure. what I mean? Yeah. Like so, it was it, it was very. Even though it wasn't my big day, it was Mike and and uh, Emily's big day. It was still very emotional for me as well. That's awesome. Did you uh, did you like go to seminary or did you do the online ordination thing? So, technically, um, although I do have an online ordination that I got just in case they would change their mind, um, mm-hmm. they literally just had the ceremony and are married in like their eyes and like in the eyes of God. They did not. Uh, oh. submit paperwork to the state because like, I mean, and I'm like, Hey, more power to you. You know what I mean? Like if I was getting married now, I would honestly consider not giving the state that like, cause you know what I mean? It's kind of like, why do we need the state to tell us we're married? So that's mm-hmm. kind of their attitude. Um, and if they ever change their mind, it's one easy trip to the courthouse to rectify, but you know, yeah. they, they cared more about having a ceremony that, you know, mattered on a personal and spiritual level than, you know, dotting all the I's and crossing the T's for the, for the government. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, well, yeah, more power to him then. Um, and congrats to Mike. And what's his wife's name? I don't even know. Emily. Emily. Uh, yep. Well, and congrats to you too for officiating your first wedding. I got ordained from, you know, one, one of the, one of the online kind of ordination mills a few years ago. And, uh, I still haven't gotten to officiate a wedding. I think I would like to. I actually, <laughs> I went to I went to this life coach training thing and I was going to be like the gay life coach. Um, <laughs> and, you know, this was right around the time when gay marriage was becoming a thing. And so uh, I think here in Minnesota, I think we passed it, like the legislature passed it before the Supreme Court ruled on it or whatever. So I was going to be like the premarital gay life co- or like relationship coach 
and then also the wedding efficient. Uh, so, so would your TV show be uh, Queer Eye for the engaged guy or something like that? Oh my or God. I, don't <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. I didn't even think that far ahead. What did we? Oh yeah. Well, so I got to go to the Tom Woods event this weekend, and I heard that, that was, was a blast. Time. Yeah, it was it was really fun. Um, there was like, I saw you I had you uh, the, had dinner with uh, with Tom Woods as well as some yeah. other cool people. So I was definitely yeah. uh, definitely jelly. It was me and then the magician Doc Dixon and then Adam. I think it's Hagen, maybe Fagan, and his wife Jennifer. Uh, and he Adam was on episode like nine forty seven of the Tom Woods show. So um, he's a professional gambler. Or actually, if you say if you introduce him as a professional gambler, he he corrects you. He says he's he's not a professional anything, um, but he makes money gambling. And was on the Tom Woods show talking about you know the sort of poker culture, I guess. So anyway, it was a lot of fun. Doc did some tricks at the, at the, at the dinner table, like real close up stuff. Yeah. I, I don't know. I guess Tom's fiance, Jenna was the one who told him to invite me because they had an open slot. It was really kind of surreal. Um, awesome. I got to meet all the tower gang guys. That was a lot of fun. Hung out with Nick for a while. And then I think Toad was actually the first person that I saw. He and Reed came into the bar while Andrew, my partner and I were, I think we were probably already pretty drunk by then, but yeah, we the the entire weekend there was just heavy drinking and laughter and hugs and yeah, it was just, it was just fun. It was great. It really was. Um, unlike unlike your wife, my partner knew exactly what to expect. Uh, so, so, so so when he showed up at the Libertarian Convention, he was like, "All right," but that's that's the that's the thing about him is he loves to be the life of the party. So it doesn't really matter like you know why everyone's gathered as long as he can make people laugh, he's happy. And judging by my DMs on Twitter, I think he succeeded. Everybody was talking about how hilarious he was. So that was good. Is your partner libertarian or is he not no. really? Okay. He's, he's, so he's not political at all. And if he were political, he would be like centrist probably. He's got some definite qualms with libertarian philosophy. Um, gotcha. But, uh, you know, we, we managed to make it work anyway, I guess. Well, kudos to you. I, I can't, I, I'm way too, uh, of a opinionated asshole to be a partner with someone who, who didn't share my political beliefs. So I'm really happy. Like, and what's funny is that my wife's never been super into politics, but, uh, mm-hmm. like when I became an, uh, an anarchist and libertarian, it kind of like, she became more interested when I did. Cause she was like, before I had been involved, like with, you know, Bernie Sanders or the democratic party, and mm-hmm. then was flirting with like the Republican party when I was starting to leave the left, but didn't really like it. And she thought all that was a waste of time. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. It's like when I became an anarchist, she was just like, well, yeah, that's basically what I've always thought. <laughs> she was like, thanks for <laughs> oh, catching up to me finally. <laughs> all right. So I just got the very first hiccup. Um, I had Chipotle for dinner and I jazzed it up with some extra spicy hot sauce. So if I start hiccuping into the microphone, I either it's going to be there for all you listeners or my editor is going to take them out somehow without charging me a thousand dollars for for the episode so i apologize if there's hiccups happening um (laughs) uh what what, oh god what was i gonna say so the tom woods thing the partners thing your wife who sounds great oh yeah so where are you at right now with lp and post-libertarianism and things like that i i feel like i change kind of change my mind on it every few days are you the same way? Or are you pretty firm in your in your like Mises Cockian uh, convictions? Yeah, I don't. You know, it's so uh, one thing that I really don't change on is that I feel like 
anything involving the GOP is at, at the very least not for me. Mm-hmm. Even if on my even like maybe on my nicest day, I might be able to acknowledge, okay, maybe for some people in some states and some counties, it might make more sense for them to work within the GOP than within the Mises caucus and the LP. Mm-hmm. Um I tend to generally lean towards that I think that those instances are few and far between. And that generally it's kind of a time preference thing and that the GOP is a much higher time preference strategy, but with no long-term vision. Because I don't think you can build... Like, the reason I'm in the Mises Caucus is not even so much for the political activism, but for the culture. And I think the Mises Caucus Mm -hmm. is effective at creating a culture within the LP that is sort of the natural... um, uh, What's the word? Um, Descent, like a descendant or a successor to the Ron Paul movement, basically. So, and, and... and that's what I think is the most effective is is uh, libertarian populism, basically, kind of like what Dave mm-hmm. Dave Smith says. Um, I think that's better done in the LP than in the GOP. Obviously, if you're just looking at, well, I just want to do local politics, decentralization, nullification stuff, like, yeah, technically you can do it within the GOP. Um, I can't really rebut that, but I, I just feel like, you know, on average, I feel like, People, I feel like the post libertarians overestimate the power. Like the, the the argument, like Matt makes a lot, is uh, if you're going to do if you're going to get involved in politics, at least get involved in politics with a party that has power. Right. And I just I don't know that argument doesn't really resonate with me because to me the GOP has power in Washington. Local politics don't really operate the same way that national politics do. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of your GOP and Democratic uh, county affiliates are really nothing but mouthpieces for their national counterparts, and they do nothing except once every four years they'll distribute yard signs and pamphlets and help people with voter registration for the presidential elections. And that's basically, you know, uh, again— on average, across the board, I understand that you know. It seems to me like the you know the two biggest exceptions that exist are New Hampshire and Florida. Mm-hmm. People like to bring those up, and it's like okay, exceptions might exist, but uh, not every state, not every county is New Hampshire and Florida. Um, so uh, I do find myself to, to to talk about where we do agree. I do find myself often in agreement with post libertarians or praxians or whatever they want to call themselves. Um, when it comes to a lot of the cultural stuff. And I, I definitely, although I've always been somebody, like I come from the left, so I've always kind of felt like we shouldn't, uh, I don't know, like turn away from the left and act like they're completely unreachable. Um, at least right now, I've started to think that at least, uh, you know, I guess, like, let me rephrase it this way. I think that although left and right both have their issues, and and there's pros and cons when you're trying to reach either. There's also uh, political and current events and like you know like uh, present day context that has to be taken into consideration. So who is like the, the idea that through all time and all you know every decade the left and the right are going to be equally reachable to me is kind of silly. There are going to be periods of time where it makes more sense to focus on trying to reach people who are more left of center 
and then people and then periods of time where it's going to make more sense to uh, reach out to people right of center. And although I feel like during the uh, Trump years and even before that, I had more success uh, because and this, I'm probably biased because I came from the left, but I felt mm-hmm. like it was easier for me to talk to left wingers than right wingers uh, and and push them towards libertarianism. Um, lately, especially since 2020 and the COVID regime, uh, I've had to come, and especially with a lot of the woke crap that's really like taken a hold on the left. Um, yeah, I've kind of started to agree with guys like Pete Cunones and a lot of the the Praxians as far as like in the here and now, I have a lot more in common with your average MAGA hat wearer than your average left winger. Um, now I, I'm still very much annoyed by, by, by your average MAGA, <laughs> MAGA hat wearer. And, um, but I've, I, I'm trying to learn to have more empathy and to, uh, recognize that, you know, like everyone has to come from somewhere and I'm not going to, you know, it's kind of like taking a more Christ-like attitude in terms of like, you know, it's, it's not, I'm not going to help these people learn if I, uh, shit on them and dunk on them as much fun as it mm. is. And even from a, you know, from a pure principled standpoint, they sometimes it seems like they deserve to be dunked on. But um, <laughs> but you know, we are going to learn to separate people's beliefs from the person themselves, and sure. uh, so that that's that's kind of I guess where I'm at as far as you know, like uh, in a in a cultural sense, I find myself um, um, sympathizing with the post libertarians a lot. But when it comes to the political strategy, I'm still way more a me- a meacock guy. What about so? I guess my one pushback would be that uh, why do you feel like you need to be part of a political movement? Well, you know, I don't feel like you need to. Um, no, you, you, not, but, not but, you uh, as yeah, in like so, the, so in a general, general, okay. general you, but the you as in Jacob Wintergrad. Um, I just feel like that's where I'm best suited um, mm-hmm. for my, my gifts. I'm good at public speaking. I'm good at uh, working in groups, working towards ends. I have a history um, in speech and debate, and I did parliamentarian debate. I'm good at, um, I don't know, I'm just, I feel like I'm well-suited to play within the political system and to reach people using that mechanism. Um, I'm a big fan of agorism, but I've struggled to find ways to, uh, excuse me, um, I've struggled to find ways to just effectively use agorism in my own life to increase my own liberty and mm. it's hard for me to uh imagine how i could use agorism to just like if that's all i was doing to reach more people um some people do that you know i, I, I and if, if i felt like it was possible for me to do that i would but i just know that i think I, i'm able to reach a larger audience working within the political arena at least right now i mean it's not something that i think necessarily is something i will do forever um, I'm also really invested in wanting the LP to be libertarian <laughs> and actually yeah. advocate libertarianism. So part of this is like, I'm, I'm definitely in it at least until like the takeover happens post takeover. I might have to like do a reevaluation and come up mm-hmm. with the exact amount of engagement I want to have. Um, but I, I feel like just for the general good of society we need a libertarian party that's at least libertarian even if yeah. even if i'm wrong on the strategy stuff um it's still I, I i don't think you can make an argument that it that there's that it's better to have a libertarian party that's a joke 
as far as advocating and, and representing the the philosophy than it would be to have a libertarian party that at least got that right. Even if they were very unsuccessful from a political standpoint, at least if the message is on point, um, I think that my ideal libertarian party is not so much a uh, you know political heavyweight so much as it is a uh, uh, like a like a lighthouse or a beacon that mm-hmm. attracts people to it, and then from there you kind of network out. I mean, like I know it's, and I know I know I trigger people like like our good friend Jose when I say you know like I like kind of like using agorism and politics, but like to me it's like a lot of people wouldn't have known what agorism was if they hadn't first like found libertarianism through oftentimes political means like Ron Paul or the Mises caucus yeah. in my case. So it's like if I can do agorism in my own life and then use the Mises caucus as a like a megaphone to like advocate how I think people should live their life and increase their own personal like a lot of the stuff that post libertarians talk about I agree with like yeah do what you can to increase your own personal liberty and the personal and and the the liberties of like your local county and your mm-hmm. your family and stuff like that. I think localism is definitely the key um but we need an effect we need an effective um messaging device to like popularize popularize that message and get more people to do that in their own communities and I'm just not convinced the GOP is that um is that effective megaphone? Yeah. Well, and especially in certain areas. I mean, you know, if you're running yeah, as a Republican it's probably different in Minneapolis, area by area. Yeah. If you're running as a Republican in Minneapolis, then you're going to get probably fewer votes than a Libertarian. I, I mean, I don't know for sure. Well, and I know even we don't, um, we don't have we don't have Republicans on our mayor ballot. Like, I mean, <laughs> it's just not a thing. True. Really. I know. I know Andrew from Popular Liberty has kind of agreed with what I've said, where he says like his strategy is more for red, like pure red states or red mm-hmm. counties. If you're a blue state or county or a purple, um, I think he's even said that that like the GOP uh, route might not be as, you know, like the, the Mises caucus strategy might make more sense in sure. those areas. So I, I can, you know, I, I, I personally, you know, think we have to be humble when it comes to strategy. And so really, I have no beef with post libs and praxians if they can, you know, like be good teammates, then we can be good teammates. You know what I mean? And work from, from dif- different spheres. I think when they were first um, figuring out what they were, they spent a lot of time, like, you know, maybe it wasn't met in bad faith, but it came across a little bit like that. Uh, but their criticisms were, like a lot of their talks were just heavily criticizing uh, the Mises caucus and attacking yeah. them. And it's just like, um, but I, I aired all this out with Pete on my podcast. And I was like, listen, if you guys aren't convinced you want to do the meat cock route anymore, like, go do your own thing. And let's work together where we can work together. But, like, I don't want to waste a lot of time shitting on you guys or having to, like, defend ourselves when you guys are shitting on us. Let's just, you know, agree to disagree on that stuff and uh, work together where we can. I mean, the Macy's Caucus, one of our, you know, one of our things in our platform is issue coalitions. And mm-hmm. uh, if we can have key, like, to me, there's actually a strategy here where, like, if we know in a certain state or county that there are key you know, Mises or Rothbardian, you know, libertarians in GOP affiliates, like that makes it easier to uh, build those bridges because we already have a contact on the inside. So, you know what I mean? I don't think it's a, um, I don't think it's a bad thing what they're doing. Um, you know, just have some personal disagreements with, I guess, how they, how they market what they're doing and, and their sure. long-term vision. That makes sense. Uh, do you think that, I guess, do you think that whatever is coming is inevitable and 
trying to stop it through electoral politics or even advocacy is even worth the time waste? I think it is on the local level, because I do think that what's coming on the national level or, or even the global stage is sort of inevitable. But I think that's why localism is so important because I mean, what, whether, cause I, 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 I think the status quo cannot continue. I do not know if we are heading towards collapse or globalization. Those are the two big options on the table for me. Like either, either the yeah. regime is going to collapse or the power has to keep centralizing. And, Yep. You can't get much more centralized than what we are unless we start, you know, uh, we have, I don't know, like an American union or something like that. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't know. Like, I know that stuff's not really on the table right now, but it's just um, I, either something like that or some big military show of force I've also thought is possible um, because to me it's like war is the health of the state. And uh, if people are kind of like doubting your legitimacy because of your fiscal uh, uh, policy and how worthless the dollar is, but you want to maintain that like monopoly on the world stage and keep borrowing, <laughs> borrowing and printing money without dealing with the consequences. Well, start a couple wars and you know, you can, you know, keep putting that off. So I don't know. It's like, I, I, I'm probably like, I'm not anti-collapsitarian, but Sometimes I think collapsitarians are people who think a collapse is coming um, underestimate the state's ability to, uh, you know, continually kick the can down the, the road. Um, I mean, Rome put it off for a very long time. So yeah. America's still very young. You know, I mean, it's what, 270 or 80 years old. Uh, so the idea that it would collapse in the next decade or two is to me, like, I understand where they're coming from, but I don't know. Like, it could last another two, 300 years. It's hard for me to say. Uh, but whatever happens, um, what you have the most impact on is your local community. And while local politics isn't the only avenue to affect your local community, um, it is one tool. And I don't know, I'm, a, I'm a mechanic. I like to have every tool in my toolbox. <laughs> when, the, when the tool truck people show up at the shop, I go out there and uh, I buy tools even if it's like, oh, this is to work on something I never worked on before. It's like, yeah, but I want it because Lord knows like if I don't buy it next week, a car like that will come in and I'll need that tool and you won't have it on your truck anymore. So I'm always somebody that likes to have every tool at his disposal. How does localism in practice combat either the collapse or globalism, which I mean, globalism, globalization, uh, like hyper-centralization might be the, the result of a collapse. I mean, if the dollar, if the dollar yeah. crashes, there's not really another reserve currency. I mean, China is not in good shape. Uh, it's not like the yuan could take over, could, you know, take over as the world's reserve currency. The, the UN it's gonna or be, somebody it's gonna would be have It's going to be Bitcoin, James. Venezuela has already adopted oh, Bitcoin. <laughs> well, if Venezuela is doing it, <laughs> Uh, um, no, so I yeah. guess my question is, yeah, what, what is the what is the practicality behind uh, l focusing on local politics and culture? Um, well, the at the very least, it's damage control. Um, mm -hmm. If there's going to be a collapse or a huge surge of power, or both, like you say, is possible. Um, the more you have, the more people who are libertarian leading in your area, the more you've built up those counter-economics in your area, uh, the more you're self-sufficient and the people around you are more self-sufficient, um, 
just the better prepared you and your family and your community are, just the better off you'll be in any of those scenarios. Doesn't mean perfect, just means like you you'll you'll at least stand the best chance of um you know taking whatever hits come from what happens and being able to rebound. Um I don't know that there's a path where local politics can prevent anything. I mean, I think that's a little idealistic at this point that we could, you know, have a perfect national divorce that starts with states seceding and then counties seceding. I know that's kind of like the ideal model, but um, it just seems to me to be a little bit unrealistic that that would happen all kind of like, you know, or, or, you know, kind of like perfectly play out that way. I'd love it to. Um, I'm pro peace and I hate war. Uh, I'd love for there to be a way to, uh, you know, deescalate the rising tyranny without violence, but, uh, it does seem less likely as, uh, as the months and the years pass. So, but you know, if there is going to be violence, then that's why localism matters too, because, uh, what matters most is being able to protect like your immediate, like surrounding area. Um, you know, but I feel like you have to you have to build those coalitions um with other counties too. And that's why to me, that's why I'm still in with the Mises caucus too, is because it's like, you know, here in PA, we have a really strong network of Meecocks across every county mm-hmm. almost. So like if shit hit the fan tomorrow, I'm not saying I'm ready, but I know I got hundreds of people in my surrounding, like my county and my surrounding counties, um, even I'm close to Maryland, even the people that are down in Maryland, it's like, I know a lot of people and I know that we could easily like, you know, semi easily come together and find a way to, uh, I don't know, like, like respond to whatever's happening. You know what I mean? So, um, and I, I, you know, I love our little, our little, like, you know, every, uh, we have like the National Mises Caucus Discord. Then like each state typically will have its own Discord chats and stuff. I know here in PA, uh, we we've a lot of people talking about agorism and cryptocurrency and you know tr- trading ideas on like it, chats about growing their own food, chats about uh, you know like you know, doomsday prepping and all that. Like so, that's the culture we've built. So yeah. it's you're like you're never you're never going to be perfectly ready. But I feel like we've built a culture that is as ready as you can be for whatever happens. And and so that's that's why I think the the you know, that's where I think the the local involvement in politics is important. I think uh the, like the whole kind of the main reason really, yeah, there's a few main reasons, but one of the reasons that I kind of no longer identify as an agorist is because the like the intensity and like just you, you mentioned doomsday prepping. And I find doomsday prepping kind of ridiculous, to be honest. The like the paranoia and intensity with which agorists go about their their interactions and things like that really kind of rubs me the wrong way. I don't like intensity anyway. I'm I'm just really laid back, uh, just kind of by nature. So I guess that's part of the reason that I still kind of stick around the LP because you know, like you said, you can kind of have all of those different flavors without without necessarily having, you know, the fundamentalist mentality that you get in, in agorist circles a lot, or, you know, in, in other circles, I mean, Jason Stapleton, I, I'm, if I lean a direction in all of these fights, Jason Stapleton is the one that I lean in that wealth, power and influence thing without the political ideology behind it really at all. But even there, I mean, you know, Jason, Jason 
has no problem telling Dave Smith in, that, yeah, sure, run for president to build your brand, but don't run for, run, don't run for president to run for president. And, and he also warns that running for president might be a destructive thing. That's something that I've been doing a lot of thinking about, and I'm not really ready to talk about it too much right now. But I'm a little bit worried about political routes just because I watch the progressives, and that that's the Democrats and the Republicans. That, like all of the Democrats and the Republicans who still consider themselves sort of junior partners in the ruling class, I guess, they <laughs> have this they have this way of kind of using judo. Like, even if they're out of power, even like, you know, on paper, even if they're, they've lost their elections and they're no longer in political power, they are able to use their cultural power to demonize the people who do have political power. And that worries me because, you know, if you get somebody smart in there who's not Donald Trump, then the backlash against that uh, I mean, it, it only takes a spark. You know what I mean? So that's one thing that I worry a little bit about with with Dave uh, and and the Mises Caucus because, you, I mean, you know, the, the Mises Caucus guys, hell, I, I've always thought, and I might have said this on your show, I don't remember, I've always thought that libertarians were smart, like just because the, the libertarians that I hang out with are smart, but having hung out in libertarian party circles for the last year or so, it's really just the Mises Caucus who have brains. And, you know, there's there's exceptions to that, obviously, but yeah, um, there's a lot of uh, re- like regime libertarians who are not really well read philosophical libertarians. They're oh, we're the third option. <laughs> we're yeah, not left fight or the right. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Trust me, I know a lot. Yeah, deal with a lot of that, so I I definitely feel that. Um, but was there anything? I don't. I didn't mean to cut you off. Did you have anything else to that? No, uh, uh, no, I think I was just, I think I was just yeah. kind of ranting. Really. I mean, it's, you know, so there's definitely a risk of, you know, Mises caucus takes over the LP. Dave Smith runs a campaign. I guess you're worried about like what kind of demonization can they do of Dave and, you know, people in the, in the, in the Mises caucus and the LP, uh, that, that hurts her brand. I don't know. I mean, to me, it's kind of like, we're already, uh, like down a hundred points in the seventh inning. So it's mm-hmm. like, I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen? We'll be losing by 110 points in the, <laughs> in the seventh inning. So it's like, uh, you know what I mean? Like we're not, we're not, um, we're not in a close race. You know what I mean? And it's kind of like, you know, what I've been upset about, like the LP strategy for the longest time has been awful because they play the game like they are in a close race when they're not. And it's just moronic. I mean, it's like they're they're down. Like the the analogy I used on um, I used this when I was on an Adam Nutter show. I was like, it's kind of like when you're um, or no, with Adam Nutter or Josh, maybe it was both. Maybe use this analogy on both of their shows. Um, but it's like if you're, I don't know how much you know football analogies, but it's just like if you're down, you know, two scores in the fourth quarter, and on you know third and six, you run a ISO run play up the middle. It's just like. You know, that's that's a play that you run when you're either like in a close game or if you have the lead and you're trying to preserve it. Um, we can't play politics like the duopoly does because like we don't have that kind of power. And really, we don't want that kind of power. So, uh, you know, I, I like the way that Karen Ann put it on my 
uh, podcast where it's like, to me, I want the LP to be an anti-political party. Um, mm. An analogy I've been using lately is that I I don't even like to say what, what we do is engage in politics. I, I You know how they're like, you know, agorism is counter-economics? I think there is something that I, I've tried to start conceptualizing and I, the best term I have for it is counter politics. Sure. It's, it's not like, cause you're not playing to win power. You're playing to expose those who have power. It's kind of like, um, in like one of my f- favorite movies ever is, uh, the dark Knight with uh, Heath Heath Ledger as the Joker. Mm-hmm. And like the Joker was not really playing a game that was to win. He played a game to like, expose the how deep the corruption was um and obviously i'm not i'm not like advocating for like joker's exact means of you know like using violence to do that but like i don't know just that kind of like engaging in the game not to like that's something that you know uh one of the criticisms that people like like matt and others in the the post post lib group will make towards us in the mises caucus is like well, you're not playing the game the right way. And it's like, well, you're right. We're not. That's intentional. <laughs> like, it's a dumb, it's a dumb, evil game. Like, we're not playing it to win because if we were, we wouldn't be who we are anymore. Mm-hmm. We're, we're playing the game. Like, we're, we're, we're playing their game as like a, a meta game. It's like, you're, like you're, you're, you're playing the game in a way that is serving a, a deeper purpose. And so, and again, and it's just one tool. And if you're not, if, if, you know, every individual has to decide for themselves what their best use of time is. Um, some people are not meant or built for politics. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, you need to recognize that and find different ways. Like if you care about liberty and you want to advocate for liberty in your own life, or even just like, you know, or, or you, you want to see more liberty in the world of the people around you, um, you want to, and you want to resist the tyranny of the state, there's many different ways you can do that. And you don't even have to just pick one, but I also would uh, advise against picking too many because there's, there's a danger there. There's a a danger in hyper-focusing on just one path. And then, Mm -hmm. then there's also a danger in like, Oh, uh, I don't know. Like it's like when you're a kid and you go to the, uh, the, the fountain soda machine and you just like, put one of each soda in, (laughs) in your, in your cup. It's like, okay, that, that might taste, rancid by the time you're done but um but yeah i pick 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 one to three you know pick two to three things that that you're good at that you think you can contribute well to the movement and uh you know it's just we have to remember that like there are no like we don't know what the right answers are and there really is no one right answer just Mm. like the marketplace is diverse and takes a division of labor to produce things and the things that get produced change over time and we've seen innovations in our lifetimes that no one ever could have dreamed of like libertarian activism is economics, just like everything else that is human action is economics. And it's subject to the same, the same rules and the same uh, market forces. So we can't centrally plan a route that's going to get to get us to Liberty. We just have to do what, you know, we, we have to um, in the praxeological sense, just do what we as individuals feel compelled to do. And we'll all serve our own, uh, like small but equally important part in the marketplace of trying to create liberty. Um, and so that's really my message to everyone is just like we don't all have to do the same thing, and it's actually better that we don't all do the same thing because, like, 
I mean, think of the pencil analogy. What if everybody said the most important part of making a pencil is the wood? So we all got into the lumber industry. <laughs> like, well, great. We have a whole shit ton of wood, but uh, we don't have any erasers. We don't have any metal and we don't have any uh, graphite. So uh, now what? <laughs> I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. When I was a kid, I don't know if this is the same for you, but when I was a kid, that mixture of all the different soda flavors was called a suicide, mm-hmm. which uh, your, yeah. <laughs> your analogy makes makes that a little bit more uh, more prescient, yeah. I guess. Prescient's probably not the right word, whatever the word is. Uh, I should I should note that I have been on planes and stuff and just not sleeping for the last several days. So I'm a little bit off my game. <laughs> But it's all right. I think we're having a pretty good conversation anyway. Uh, why don't we why don't we switch gears? What's uh, what's going on with your faith? How are you doing spiritually with all the all the shit that's going on? Um, it didn't take me too long to get to a good place. I mean, when when he first went in, I wasn't too worried, and then he started to get worse, and then when he got really bad, um, it was tough. It's really, re- again, I'm like repeating myself, but it's really fucking tough not being able to see him, not being able to visit him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I wouldn't say like, I didn't leave things off in a bad place with my dad, but it's just like, you know, it's too soon. I mean, so there was a lot of like first week or so I was just really struggling personally. Like I'm not ready to lose my dad. There's too much unfinished. I'm not going to be able to, you know, move on without having that closure. Um, so I was really angry and upset for about a week. Um, especially as he got worse. Um, but you know, I've, uh, I've been through this before kind of, unfortunately not with my dad so much, but with my daughter, um, I almost lost her Mm -hmm. when she was like one and a half. Um, and that was awful. Actually, so she was like, long story short, she was in the hospital. She was having seizures and the, she was so young that the seizures were so intense and long enough that they were causing her oxygen levels to drop really bad. Um, and every time she had one, they would struggle to keep her oxygen levels up, but then they gave her some anti-seizure medication. And, um, now I didn't know this at the time, but we came to found out that they gave her the wrong medication, which played a role into why things got worse. But we thought that, okay, she's on anti-seizure medication. She's not going to have a seizure for at least a while while they're running tests. So I ran home to get stuff. Uh, just because I was like, okay, we're going to be in here for at least a few days, if not a f- what ended up being actually was a few weeks. Uh, actually, we transferred from York Hospital down to uh, John Hopkins um, because things got so bad, York Hospital said, you got to go. We can't like, we can't keep her. The literal words were, we cannot keep your daughter alive. So we, we had to, uh, take an ambulance ride down to, uh, John Hopkins. Um, but so I went down to, to our house, which was like 20 minutes away from the hospital. Um, and of course at the same time that I went down there, an accident happened on like the, the interstate going northbound. So, I, and I knew that. Like I, I was like going down, and I saw that the road, like the, all the cars were in standstill. And I was like, ah, I'll take the back way back to the hospital, which is like an, an extra 10 minutes. Well, I'm, I'm like packing up stuff, getting clothes, you know, f- phone chargers, stuff like that. And I was already getting ready to leave. And then my sister calls because my sister had come to the hospital to help us. And she said, Jacob, you got to get back here. She's like, we were all in the room. She had another seizure. 
Her O2 started to get really low. They rushed all of us out. They called a code because her heart stopped. We don't know what's going on. And I mean, at the time, like, you know, I'm just like, daughter, okay, her O2 went down and they called a code because her heart stopped. I had, that's all they knew. So I had no idea if my daughter was even alive at that point. And I had to drive, you know, back way. I couldn't take the highway. I'd go in like 75 miles an hour down roads that were like, you know, 35 mile per hour speed limits. Um, you know, like, like get impatient at every light and just, that was the longest 30 minute drive of my life. And, um, that was like the first time I really had like one of those, like, you know, my faith was coming into like, you know, it was a, it was a head on collision with reality. Like mm-hmm. my faith had never been tested like that before. Um, and I, I, I was just angry and bitter, but I just, I, I don't know, something in me just knew from everything that I've read and everything I'd experienced that, you know, I was like, uh, I just started to think like, who am I to make my, my suffering special? I was like, if my daughter dies today, I had one and a half years with her, which some people don't even get that. Some people, some people's children die at birth. Some people's children die in more horrific ways than my daughter has. Like li- life is already like that. That's like, I already knew this life is filled with suffering and, and horrible things and evil things happen. It's like, so if, if, if I'm going to lose my faith now, just because it became personal, um, that I never really had it. So I, I just kind of calmed down, slowed my car down and just started praying. And I, and why, what I said was God, I'm not ready to let my daughter go, but if you have, if you have determined that this is the time that she is to come home to you, I will not stop loving you. And I will still, I will still worship you all the same. And then as I pulled into the hospital, I got text from my sister saying that she was stable and that she was okay. So yeah, that's what I had to go, you know, I had to go through that again this, these past well, three weeks now, actually almost because he, he got on the ventilator, um, yeah, tomorrow it'll be three weeks mm. from when he went in and got on the ventilator. Um, it's a little different. You know, there's a different relationship that you have with a daughter than you have with your father. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I can't say that my faith hasn't been challenged, but I guess it was like, I, I just knew like I, I was better prepared this time on, on that front. Um, you know, faith is a very stubborn, at least in my experience, faith is a very stubborn thing. It's like this, uh, um, I, I don't know. This is, this is the only analogy that's coming to my head, which is probably a weird one, but it's kind of like a bee sting. It's like, you know what I mean? If you get stung, you can try to ignore it all you want, but there's just something in the back of your head that still knows like, ah, this fucking hurts. Like I got stung. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, that's, that's what my faith has been throughout my life. Um, mm-hmm. Even when I've tried to run away from it, it's like this, you know, it's weird. I'm describing my faith as something painful, but there is something, I don't know. I think there's something Christian about that. Like Jesus kind of says, you know, he, he's kind of contradictory sometimes, at least like to our understanding. Jesus says like, my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then he also says like, if you are persecuted, you know, like, you know, give thanks because those who follow me will be persecuted. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it's a, it's a little weird how uh, both those things are kind of true at the same time. But, um, yeah, it's 
it's it's been tough, but I don't think my faith has wavered because I've, you know, I, I think I've come to understand that my, you know, it's my faith is part of who I am. And, I, you know, I, even if the most, like I, I've tried to, I've, I've, since that, what happened with my daughter, I've tried to, to, you know, just be ready to realize, especially as I became a libertarian and like, you know, I wasn't a libertarian when the stuff happened with my, my daughter. Like, I think I had started to become a libertarian, but I wasn't like where I am today. And like, as I became a libertarian and realized how evil the world was, um, that challenged my faith too, to be honest. Like when I became a libertarian, it was almost a existential crisis for me and my faith. Um, but now it's just like, I, I don't know. I'm just hyper aware of how broken and fallen the world is. And I guess my expectations are based around that. And so my faith isn't challenged when life, you know, turns sour because I guess I'm just, I'm, I'm expecting that. But what, what sustains me through it is my faith because my, uh, truthfully, I don't know how people without faith get through tragedy to be, to be honest. And I, I don't mean that to sound judgmental, but just like, if you didn't have, if you didn't have something like eternity to put your hope in something like God to put your hope in, and you just had to look at the suffering in the world and just accept it that like, well, this is just life sucks and evil things happen and there's no purpose to it. I don't, I don't know how I could, uh, I don't know how you could overcome that. So, sorry, that was a bit of a rant, but. <laughs> no, it was a good uh, one, man. I almost started crying. I, I, I kept my composure. Way to go. Good host. Uh, what, so what about, um, so that's your, that's your faith and that's great. What about spiritual, spiritual practices? Are you, are you doing anything different? Um, did, do you have like a spiritual, I don't know if ritual is the right word, but. Uh, I don't know. Like, what what is your spiritual life like? Your prayer, fasting. I'm guessing you don't say the rosary. We'll, we'll get you out one of these days. <laughs> I've contempl- I contemplated fasting. Um, I didn't actually commit to a hard fast, although I uh, I did like a impartial sugar fast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like even like this what I'm drinking right now. Like I've started getting these uh zero sugar sodas because like. I'm not able to, <laughs> I wasn't able to give up my sweet tooth completely, but, uh, <laughs> I've just started substituting it with, uh, with diet sodas and sugar-free things wherever I can. So, um, um, and I've been trying to, you know, r- r- I read the, I always read the Bible. Um, mm-hmm. I've just continued that up, continued to, to, I, I listen to a lot of worship music, um, and a, lot, a lot of hymns actually, um, as I've, grown older i've be, i've this is one of the things that like I, i've started to lean a bit more traditional but uh like i grew up in the contemporary uh evangelical world but i've come to kind of detest contemporary worship and i uh i actually love i love the hymns and prefer like I, i'd prefer my worship services to be nothing but hymns at this mm-hmm. point um there's just there's just something about like i when the you know things with my dad got really bad i posted the lyrics to it as well on my uh um, Facebook. I mean, just uh, there's something about the hymns that embody, you know, the, 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 the lyrics take on, it's like, I, it would be probably heresy or at least heterodox to say that the hymns ha- are almost, um, another form of scripture, but I don't know. I mean, and sometimes they're quoting scripture, but even, even when they're not, it's like, there's something about the traditional hymns that just, um, 
I don't know. Like my my favorite hymn of all time is "Be Thou My Vision," and uh, yeah, it, it's and it's one of the oldest ones too. Um, if I if I believe correctly, um, fr- from what I've read, and I don't know, it just perfectly encapsulates and kind of like centers me on what my walk with Christ is. And there's just something about the, I don't know, the, the, the words ring together in hymns truer and then, then they ring in most contemporary song and most contemporary songs is all about, you know, it's building up the, the music and the singing and the beats in a mm-hmm. way that like, it's just like it, it provokes an emotional response or even a physical response because music can do that. But there's something, well, you know, in, you know, and yeah. you know, in like 30 years, Chris Tomlin's entire, entire discography is going to be in the, in the pew hymnal and all the kids are going to think it's super boring. You know that, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> you and I were made to worship. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> Well, so Augustine said that he who sings prays twice. It was weird on my ears to hear you have qualms about saying that uh, hymns are like secondary scripture because in my upbringing, you know, reading scripture would have been secondary to prayer and worship. Uh, like reading scripture, reading scripture, sure, it, it can be an act of worship, but it's not inherently an act of worship. It's yeah. not. Well, I'm, like a, a sp- I'm an autistic uh, solo scriptura <laughs> Calvinist. You'll have to forgive yeah. me. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, but there's something, I don't know, like I've even, I don't know. I, I I go back and forth. I'm my own worst enemy and I'm, I'm over analytical in my, in my head. But like, mm-hmm. see, like I, I, I believe in solo scriptura, but then at the same time, I, will debate it in my head sometimes because I just, I don't know. There's, I mean, there is something to the argument. It doesn't get me the whole way there, but there's something to the argument that's like, well, you wouldn't have the scriptures without the church or the church played a role in that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and even that like, you know, the, the apostles, they didn't have the new Testament. They just had the oral tradition. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's there's something there, like I I don't even know if sola scriptura is an exact way to define my beliefs. I I guess it's like the way I use it, and what what I really want to stand on is that I don't want to be one of those Christians who cherry picks the Bible or goes, oh well, this wasn't written by God, this was written <laughs> by man. Like that yeah. that is what I oppose. I don't know if I'm in as strong opposition to the idea that there is something to the Christian faith and tradition, like that is, I don't know, deeper or more, I don't want to say more important than scripture, but I guess it's just like maybe in a hierarchical sense, it's like something that comes before it. Like it's kind of like we talked about last episode, I think on my podcast where it's like, Mm -hmm. does the spirit come from God alone or from God and the son, you know, like what's the exact order? You know what I mean? I had just been been reading about that that day. So did we talk about this? I I'm I really I probably should have re-listened to our converse, our last conversation before we did this. But shout out to Tommy Salmons, by the way. He he really liked that episode, which uh which is great. And you've got a new listener, so that's good. And I, I'm glad that I'm glad that I was able to introduce him to your show because he's got a great show. You, you, now that you guys know each other, you should probably collaborate. Oh, I didn't somehow. know he had a show. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, Tommy Sal. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's got Year Zero. It's on the Libertarian Institute's um, kind of masthead 
Uh, it's a okay. it's a great show. Actually, I just got to hang out with Tommy, and th- let's not talk too long about Tommy because he's already got a big enough head. Um, but we got to I got to hang out with him and his wife Beatrix at Thad Russell's Renegade University weekend out at Buck Johnson's place uh, outside of Austin, and that it, man, what a good dude. Uh, and it, his show is so cool. Um, it's just basically him talking to people, which is in, like any interview show, but like it's it's even more casual than you know Blackbird or, or or any other you know interview show that you listen to. Like his dogs will come in the room, and then the, he and the guests will just talk about the dogs for a little bit. His wife comes in because she needs a <laughs> cigarette, that kind of thing. Like it's just it's just like you're sitting in his house. Um, it's it's one of the coolest it's one of the coolest podcasts in like the Liberty space. So. Definitely, if you don't listen to it, you should. And audience, same thing. Um, which reminds me, I owe him a I owe him a message. I should probably get to him. Uh, anyway, what were we talking? What do you make of all the? I was going to ask this, and I don't remember if we talked about it. What do you make of all the people converting to Orthodox Christianity? Yeah, I mean, and that's that's very popular in the libertarian Christian circles. Um, yeah, I remember when I when I kind of first joined the. Christian libertarian and Christian anarchist social media, there was kind of like at the same time, this great, like, I don't know, weird renaissance of like people like rediscovering the Orthodox faith. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, as much as I know about Orthodox Christianity, I mean, there's some overlap, I guess, in their, uh, you know, there's what's, what's his name? I think Brooks Cavey is one of the big names um uh in uh like the the Christian Orthodox sphere and oh I've you know, he, heard of him. Yeah, you should uh he did an interview with uh my counterpart uh uh Craig Hargis who does the yeah. Bad Roman project. Yeah. Um yeah they had a um yeah and, and Craig's a good friend although we we we're like oil and vinegar. <laughs> we're like completely different but somehow friends but we are we we argue and then like we have to take breaks from each other because like we just it's like we love each other but can't stand talking to each other at the same time it's this uh it's a love-hate relationship um all you need is a little mayonnaise to make a delicious salad dressing <laughs> and that was not a reference to anything other than salad dressing um but yeah i don't i don't know what it is about uh the orthodox faith that attracts people to it specifically. I don't know if it's, uh, they, they tend to, I think it's not so much anything about the, even probably the faith so much or like the, the doctrines as it is maybe the people and their approach to doctrine because they, 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 they sort of approach it with a humility and a gracefulness that I think attracts a lot of people. Um, you know what I mean? And and it kind of comes across as like getting reattached to your roots. And I don't mean to call out Catholics here, but it's like, it's like for people who find themselves at odds with the Catholic church for whatever reason, mm-hmm. but feel that call to reconnect with historical Christianity and the traditions to be found within it, orthodoxy probably presents itself as a, uh, appealing option. Uh, what's, what's weird is that there's like, I get that appeal, but I don't know. There's part of me, like my main hang up with Catholicism really at this point is just the Pope and the fact that there's no good Catholic churches around me. Other than that, like, I really want to check it out and explore it more. And mm-hmm. w- as far as my studying of, of history, 
I feel like I would have leaned more on the Catholic side than the Orthodox side when it came to that schism, but it's a complicated, messy history. So I won't get too much into that, but I don't know. There's, there's something and like, and, and like part of this was like, I really love, I just know a lot of really good Catholics <laughs> and uh, I really love, like I, I kind of started rediscovering Catholicism and like looking into it when I, I we talked about this last time when I discovered uh, Bishop Barron and just there's something about like again I feel that call to kind of like I want to have that connection to historical Christianity that I don't really feel in my my current kind of like evangelical circles, um, but I also at the same time it's like I want that connection, but then I also autistically rebel against the uh, <laughs> <laughs> some of the uh, imposed traditions. So it's a uh, yeah I don't know, but, but maybe that's why. Uh, um, I'm, I don't know uh, who was it that said. Uh, well, I think it was my friend Caleb that said, "Like you're, if you're, uh, when I said you're a self-loathing Catholic, and he said that's every Catholic. So maybe I'm, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm just discovering that I was, I was just born to be a Catholic or something. I don't know. Aww. Poor Caleb. Yeah, and I think probably orthodoxy. What, what it, what it brings to the table is, I hate citing Vin Armani because I do it so much, but. <laughs> Um, is that like if we're entering an age of magic, then there is no magical, there, there is no more magical Christianity than Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, you know, they've always, they've always been that way in the East. It's, they, they, they mix Orthodoxy with this just kind of crazy praxis with their iconography. And to them, I think, and I could be wrong about this. Like, I don't, I don't really know much about Orthodoxy at all, but it feels to me like they really put worship before doctrine hmm. more than more than any other brand of Christianity. And if if worship, you know, that, that's kind of, that's you know that's a form of magic. Um, so you know, if that's what we're doing right now, if we're if we're moving into sort of a post enlightenment, post reason, new age of mysticism, then. Orthodoxy might be kind of where it's at for those of us in the sort of Christian milieu. And you you mentioned Bishop Barron. I think part of the reason you probably like him is because he's an American Catholic and American Catholics are all Protestants. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. I don't there's just something about like so I I don't know. I still lean Calvinist in a lot of my beliefs. But my attitude is not Calvinist because mm. a lot of Calvinists profess beliefs in a way that's very um, kind of like a, I've had this conversation with Jose. Like a lot of evangelicals and Calvinists are very not, um, Gnostic in their belief structure and the way they conceive of their yeah. doctrines and stuff. They're like, this is they, the they truth. Have com- they have that in common with libertarians, by the way. <laughs> That's true. Um, but I, I just, I don't, uh, like, there's so little I'm willing to, like, you know, proclaim so strongly that I'll die on the hill for it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, the only, like, I like to say the only hill I'll die on is Calvary. Like, I, I literally, that's the only hill I'm not going to give up on is, like, what Jesus did on on the cross. Yeah. Like, that, that is, to, like, that's, that's, if you get rid of that, like what's Christianity anymore? So to me, that's at the core. That has to be preserved. The the core gospel has to be, uh, you know, stood up for. And and I'm not going to retreat on that. Everything else is just, 
I don't want to say it's gravy, but it's just, I, I'll have my beliefs, but I just can't approach them with this level of certainty or, I, I mean, judgment towards other Christians that a lot of my yeah. fellow evangelicals and, and Calvinists do. Whereas, I, I don't know, not there are definitely Catholics that have that attitude as well, but I've I've met a lot of Catholics and I've met a lot of more you know Orthodox leaning Christians who I have way more in common when it comes to like a, my temperament and outlook as far as like how I uh, approach theology. Like, even if I come to different conclusions, I appreciate that for a lot of Catholics and Orthodoxes uh, Orthodox Christians that theology is more of a like a journey towards greater mysteries that we'll never completely understand. And there's a joy in not completely understanding parts of the faith. Mm-hmm. Whereas some of the danger of the systematic theology, especially of like, uh, you know, Calvinism and other Protestant sects, I think, is that it's like, you know, they they, they kind of put God and religion in this box, and anything outside the box is bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't we don't talk about it. if it's not in the box. We don't talk about it. We don't look at it. We don't acknowledge it. it. Doesn't exist. If you talked about it, then you're outside the box. You don't exist. You must be gone from our presence. <laughs> and that's that's my problem. Is that even if I agree, like I I, I lean towards the Calvinist conception of salvation. Like that, that's the main thing. Like I'm more of a monergist. I believe in the idea of that like salvation is something that God initiates um, at least way more so than, than we do, that it has more to do with God's, God's choice and God, you know, the, the Calvinist conception is that we are dead in our sin and that dead men cannot revive themselves. And so God has to first, you know, replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh for us to be able to, and it's not that God forces us to choose him, but rather God uh, revives us and then um, from that state of regeneration, where we're actually able to see God and choose him, we of course choose him because only an idiot wouldn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that's that's kind of my Calvinist framework of, of salvation, which uh, rings true in my experience in my life, because it matches up with my experience of my faith, like I was talking about earlier. Like, Sometimes I feel like more the like the, the more Catholic or traditional, maybe synergistic views of salvation are a bit more like faith is a bit more intellectual and a bit more conscious and chosen. Whereas with me, it's like my faith is like, you know, I could I could actively try to abandon it and it would just, you know, like double in size. It's like it's not something I have any control. Like you asked me the first time we talked on your podcast, why do you believe in God? And I was like, I don't know. I just do. It's <laughs> it's like it's like asking me why do I breathe or like why do I like uh like why do I like cornflakes and I hate rice krispies? It's like I don't know. I just I just do. It's just who I am. It's not it's it's a fundamental part of my being that I can't turn off. Um, but you know, at, at, at the same time, I, I, uh, um, I don't know. At, at the same time, it's like, those are my beliefs, but I'm open to learning more and studying more and meditating and praying more. And maybe I'm wrong. So 
I don't know what monergist means, but since you oh, contrasted um, it with well, since you contracted contrasted it with synergist, I kind of do now. Like yeah. monergist would be uh, one one initiator of the of the salvation, whereas synergist yes. would be like a partnership. Yes, exactly. So is that why uh, I, I'm trying to reconcile? I guess monergism with I think it's in First Timothy that you know God wills it all be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned before that you almost lean universalist would yes would that yes would that be a way to reconcile that verse that's the universalist argument yeah that's that's actually the universalist the the universal reconciliatory argument is basically like monergism plus like first timothy and other passages where it's like god is the one who does the saving uh jesus died on the cross for the sins of all and wants all to be saved Therefore, all are like that's a very simplistic like summary of their mm-hmm. argument, but that's basically the argument. And my position is that's kind of compelling, but I don't know, and I would never assume to know or like claim certainty in the idea that God has saved every man uh, and woman. And uh, but I'm definitely hopeful that that's a possibility, mm-hmm. um, and I. As far as, you know, if if God wants all to be saved and not everyone is saved, there's a mystery there. And some Calvinists try to shy away from that. I don't shy away from that. But to me, it's it's the same mystery that exists on like, you know, why does God allow, allow evil? Why does God let certain things happen? Like we can kind of come up with – like the answers we give aren't like explanations completely. They're sort of like, well, God's ways are higher than our ways – and we can't begin to imagine being in the position of of God where, you know, you know, having that kind of control over people uh, and, and outcomes, if he stopped every bad outcome, what would like, you know what I mean? It's kind of these hypothetical um, uh, philosophical scenarios that people try to use to justify why God allows certain evil. Um, almost like they, they, they almost remind me of like trolley arguments sometimes the way people try to yeah. explain why God allows evil. But truthfully, it's like, well, there's, there's, you know, part of existence and part of reality and consciousness and our experience that's unexplainable. And I don't know, there's just part of me that like, when I hit that wall, it's just, well, I don't have the perfect answer, but this makes more sense than, a completely random godless universe where, you know, I'm a random compilation of stardust and atoms, but I, I, I care very deeply about morality, which to me seems yeah. like a, I don't know, but it's, that, that, that makes less sense to me. <laughs> to me, it feels like, I mean, God allowing bad things to happen or whatever is kind of the weakest argument in my in, in my opinion. I, I mean, I agree. If you're if if that's if that's why you don't believe in God, then you're you know you're not you're not you have a you have a bad construction of what God is, and you're thinking what what you're thinking is people who don't think like you are worshiping not God but their their ideals and their pleasure and their comfort, and that's that's not that's not what God is. I mean, you know. Uh, yeah, the 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 picture is much bigger than than you know Jacob Winograd's daughter, for instance. You know, I mean, yeah, maybe and and you realize that in your car that night. You know, that's 
Well, think of the story of Joseph. Like, I mean, Joseph would not be in the position to do the great things he did if he hadn't suffered through all the horrible things that he suffered through. And that's just like, that's the, that's the clearest example we have in scripture of why, of like, it's not like a textbook answer. And that's why the Bible is such a amazing book. It's why, mm-hmm. it's why I believe it's the word of God, because the stories in the Bible tell us truths and teach us lessons that you couldn't, like, you know what I mean? Like, if someone asks me, why does God allow evil to happen? I can't give them an answer. I would tell them, read the story of Joseph. Like, your answer is in that story. I can't put it in words. You know what I mean? It's not a math equation. Mm-hmm. But the answer is there. You know what I mean? Like, why Why is jealousy bad? It can be hard to explain to a child why jealousy and 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 being angry with your brother or sister is bad. Have them read the uh, story of Cain and Abel. Suddenly, what you you know, you start to realize, okay, that's why jealousy and coveting are bad. You know what I mean? It's like uh, this is why Jordan Peterson was so like I think such a phenomenon. Why he appealed to me specifically was because he um, helped to remind a lot of us who had become disconnected from our faith why the stories in the Bible are so valuable and mm-hmm. it's it, like they are God breathed, but they're not like the stories are not important because just they're God breathed. It's like they're God breathed. And that's why the stories are so magnificent and so impactful um, and, and deeper than, I mean, I, I feel a lot of ways like Protestant Sunday school is to blame for this because they <laughs> taught these stories in such like boring, very autistic ways that like, yeah diminished them you know what i mean and uh so we had a whole generation that was kind of like never they never got past being fed the milk you know what i mean like they never got the bread they never got the meat the they only ever got the bread and you know the bread's not satisfying after a while i learned more from veggie tales than i did from sunday school to be honest that's the truth yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so what what about irresistible grace that that's that's a sticking point for me with mm. Calvinism. Mm. Do you have a do you have like a quick and dirty defense of that? <laughs> quick and dirty defense. Um, if if grace can be resisted, I guess the argument would be that there's a will stronger than God's. Okay, that's that's basically to, to summarize the answer, and that's basically the the reason why uh, monergists are monergists and they don't believe in synergism because it's kind of like the whole, the whole premise is basically like if the Calvinist conception of synergism is that you're putting humans in a position where their will is a rival to God's and it it comes into conflict with the idea of a sovereign God who has predestined all things to the uh, counsel of his will. It's like, well, can God be thwarted? Is God, Sitting here hoping that humans do the right thing, like crossing his fingers, like oh, I hope hope James and J- James and Jacob talk about this thing because if they don't, yeah. oh, I'm gonna have to go back to the drawing board. It's like, um, and it, you know, now I will say, like, so to me, there is a reconciliation between free will and irresistible grace, and mm-hmm. and monergism and free will, which is something that a lot of Calvinists will give me shit for. Yeah, because <laughs> well, there's um, a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of verses in the New Testament that. Um, I mean, use the literally the Greek word synergeo, like synergy. Um, so, you, mm. I, I mean, th- we we do work together with God according to 
uh, I think it's like Mark, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, James. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of those verses, but you know, I mean, it, it, I, I guess I guess if I'm just you know putting myself in the head of a Calvinist and also not letting you talk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would, I, I guess I would just say like, you know, th- this working together is a post hoc thing. Like once the grace has been imparted, then mm. you can become coworkers with the creator. Is that, that is, right? that is part of that was kind of like what I said earlier, like God removes the wool from your eyes and yeah. then you are free to choose. But like God had to act first to give you that ability. But I think it also goes deeper than that. There's this idea called Mullenism. And I talked to Karen Ann about this a little bit on my podcast, but it's mm. something that Calvinists reject because, and they reject it for that. Look what I talked about earlier. Like it's that box of sola scriptura. And like, if it's not in the box, then, then it can't be true. And it's like, and it's like, okay, but like we do derive some ideas from scripture that aren't explicitly stated. Like the word Trinity isn't found in the Bible for example. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's like, um, or I, I had uh, Greg Baus on my show a couple weeks ago, and we talked about the idea of uh, sphere sovereignty, which is a Calvinist idea. That's not found in the Bible explicitly, but it's a theory that's built upon the truths and scriptures from the Bible. And so to me, Molinism is kind of in that category as well, which is the idea that God has a, like to summarize it, is that God has a middle knowledge and he knows all counterfactuals. So the way that he can orchestrate all things to the counsel of his will without coercively, uh, deterministically making people do things contrary to their will. Uh, real quick, you've mentioned you've rec- you've mentioned orchestrate all things to the counsel of his will. Is that is that a Bible verse? It is. I can't remember at the top of my head. Oh, that's um, it's fine. I, I wasn't yeah. <laughs> sure if it was a, if it was a scripture or or a like a Calvinist tradition or what. It doesn't. It, it's not. A, it's not a big deal. I just wanted to make sure because I'd never heard it before. Right, I'm sure fine. it's. I'm sure it's one of those things that's really, really big in Calvinist circles, though, because it certainly sounds Calvinist. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, you know, and it's it is um it's fair for this division to be there because there's a lot of verses that and and passages that if you read them uh, in isolation, team tend to lead in Calvinism, and then yeah. there's ones that tend to lean the other direction. Um, you know, things like First Timothy, like the passage you brought up, they're they're a little bit hard to reconcile with Calvinism, but then I think. Like the whole chapter of Romans nine is hard to to reconcile with synergism. So it's you know what I mean. Like in Romans nine, we get the whole thing of like, who are you, O oh man, to question God? You know what shall the clay say to the potter? <laughs> you know what I mean. Like um, so there's and there's different comment. Like I've read all the synergist uh, refutations of that passage and why it's not why Calvinists are wrong. And you know it's like listen, this is my belief. This is not a hill I will die on. I could be completely wrong about this and I'm okay with it. It's just, well, um, it's just like, this is what I think makes the most sense based upon where I'm at in my theological journey. From what I understand, you're in good company. I mean, the, the Augustinians and Thomists are much closer to Calvin than they are to say, you know, uh, the Wesleyans. Sure. Y- you know, I mean, we're, we're not so far apart, you and I. Uh, well, I mean, you and I probably are. But you and I, as an I, as like for some reason a representation of Catholicism uh, in the libertarian sphere. Um, well, that, why don't we? There's like the, there's also the uh, the Anglicans and uh, 
Um, oh, I don't know, do they have doctrines? I thought they just—I <laughs> thought they just were a reactionary thing. <laughs> Maybe I don't know, but they—they've, uh, from what I've read, have kind of mixed a little bit of their uh, post-Catholicism, like you know, stuff with a little bit of Reformed theology. So, oh, interesting. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It's—it's it's all interesting, and again, this is to me, it's all an enjoyable part of like the journey of trying to understand more of the mystery. It's, but we never, we never completely get there and odds are we'll probably get to heaven and we're all equally wrong and right at the same time. Like we all, yeah. you know, take it, take a, I like the analogy of a diamond with many facets. Like we're all looking at a facet on the diamond and we can tend to be hyper-focused on what's right in front of us and not, or it's like looking at the moon and like we, we, you know, one side of the planet sees one part of the moon while the other sees the other part. And it's like, like, well, I only see this. It's like, well, I only see this. And it's like, okay, well, turns out you're both right. There's 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 more than one side to it. And uh yeah, that's 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 the way my mind works, at least. Yeah. We see as in a mirror. Yes, that's true. <sighs> By the way, I looked it up because I just could help myself. That passage okay, I'm yeah, quoting good, good. is uh, Ephesians 111. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. There you go. All right, cool. Um, I have one more question for you because we talked about hymns and I wanted to ask this when we were talking about Heiss's wedding and I couldn't wedge it in. Um, were there any cool songs, hymns, et cetera, sung at his wedding? No, he didn't really play any Christian music during the wedding. Um, he did play, and this is more of a nerd thing than a Christian thing, um, and then, like it was funny, so I don't know if you were into video games or are not growing up. Sure, um, but like Heist and I are big nerds, like into like Kingdom Hearts and Final Fantasy, and uh, oh, stuff that's like way that. nerdier than I got. Oh, but yeah, okay, yeah, no, no, we're, but we're we're yeah, we're super nerds, and he had wow. Kingdom Hearts and Final Fantasy music in his uh, uh, pre-wedding and reception um, music playlists, which was funny because like for everyone else, it's like oh, this is a, this is a very uh, um, uh, nice ballad, very nice uh, instrumental, and and like <laughs> me and Mike are just like, God. yeah, really nice. When uh, we were like eight and playing playing on our PlayStation twos and stuff, and, and yeah, and but like my I wife knew, like she'd see me get into a song and she'd be like, the one song came on, she was like, oh, that's really beautiful. Where have I heard that before? And I was just like, definitely not when I've been playing Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> she was like, oh, damn my it. Lord. I have a feeling if I have a feeling if Andrew and I ever get married, there will be some video game music played. Like Minecraft is just coming to mind. For instance, that's got the most beautiful mu music. Also, I don't know if you've played it. Uh, I'm not a gamer. I don't play games, but I watch. I love watching games. Um, there's a game called Hollow Knight. Are you familiar with it? No, I'm not. It's an it's a it's a more modern, way more modern than what you just mentioned. Uh, See, I'm indie a, game. I'm a boomer when it comes to video games. I'm like okay. if it if it's a uh, if it's anything that I can't play on my PlayStation 2 or Xbox 360, I don't want it. <laughs> well, Hollow Knight is kind of in the it's kind of in the vein of like Metroid where you're kind of okay. like re re replaying the game over and over again as you get new achievements. But the the artwork and the music in that game is just amazing. It is uh, just the most beautiful game I've ever seen. Um, so you know, if you're a gamer in the audience, go play Hollow Knight. I guess. Yeah, some, Jacob, some indie some indie games have some really great music. Like I don't, I don't know if you've ever yeah. heard of uh, Undertale, but that has some of the uh, yeah, that's another one. I, I actually some of the most amazing music. 
I actually played Undertale. Uh, Andrew was sitting yeah. there guiding me the entire time. Um, <laughs> he 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 took me down the the pacifist route where I didn't kill anybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I got to see the like the, the nice little flowery ending. Apparently, there's the genocide route too, where you yes. kill everybody. The game was so fucked up, <laughs> and it's a little bit different. Um, I love how that game that game was. Yeah, so cleverly designed, where like your saves yeah. aren't really saves. Yeah. Like they part of the gameplay. Yeah. Yeah. It's really yeah. cool. That's a that's a great game. I know what you did. <laughs> I'm not quite as crazy about the music in that game. It's a little too eight bit for me, but that's all right. Uh, see, I, I'm that's allowed, I grew to, up I'm allowed with, to have bad so. taste because everybody yeah. else loves Undertale's music. Okay, we're going long. Plug away. Do your thing. Uh yeah, Daniel three, biblical anarchy. Pretty much everywhere you want to look. Uh Twitter handle is at biblical anarchy. Uh if you want to follow me on Twitter, the podcast is on YouTube. If you want the uh, video f- form and w- and you want to watch it live. Otherwise, if you want to just listen to the audio afterwards, uh, pretty much, I don't know, everywhere that you can find a podcast, I've found myself yeah. to be on if you just do a search, um, you know, but uh, Apple and Spotify uh, and Google Podcasts, like the big ones, obviously I'm on there. Yeah. Have you been doing more live streams since the last time we talked? I pretty much usually do, like every podcast now lately tends to be a live stream. Um, nice. I, I've done a couple shorts. Like I, I have two, two different things I'm doing now. I have my live streams and that's like 80% of what I do. But then sometimes I just want to talk about something and it doesn't warrant a full two hour episode. Um, mm-hmm. and so I'll do a pre-recorded like 30 to 45 minute monologue. And then that just gets recorded and published, um, and, and released later. But I only do that, you know, maybe once every couple weeks or so. Cool. Yeah, and you did that call-in show a couple. Well, I guess that was because you got stood up by a guest who we won't mention. Yeah, you know, but, I've been, uh, you know, it's like I, I've I have people that have uh, submitted on the website that they want to come on and talk about some things. I just have to uh, uh, find a time to because, like, the problem is like my schedule is very like I have to do shit late, like what we're doing now, yeah. and a lot of people don't have that ability. So how does that how does that work out for you? Do you, do you um you don't get like a lot of spam or you don't really fit my brand or anything like that people asking to be on the show not too much i had one well well, no actually having the website there and having there's like a questionnaire you have to fill out and that's weeded out actually because before i used to just go hey i'm doing a call-in show tomorrow everybody message me or whatever if you want to come on (laughs) or what i did one time was i literally just posted the Streamyard join link and that got some very autistic uh, oh, people goodness. in the lobby who wanted to talk about things that were like, that's no, we're not gonna, we're not like someone wanted to come it. on, someone wanted to come on and have a conversation about uh, uh, paganism and stuff. And I was just like, ah, that's just not my thing, but um, cool. well, so, I because yeah. I, you know, I use that booking website, but uh, I keep it, I keep it hidden because I don't want, I don't want just like anybody and everybody to say. Oh, I think I'd be a good fit for Blackbird because I, you know, I mean, I'm 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 kind of a slut when it comes to interviews, but I'm not I'm not that much of a slut. Let so, me come on if you're and having... advertise my healing elixir made of know, balsam oil and <laughs> that would be the that would be the best guess. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> don't if you're if you're selling snake oil, don't come on my show. But uh, yeah, I might actually I might actually add a link to that somewhere. Um, I'm thinking about man, we're talking way inside baseball right now. We got to go. Uh, I'm thinking about taking my website off of Substack and 
going back to WordPress because Substack lacks some of the features that I kind of want with, you know, things like that where you've got, you know, just custom pages and things like that. So, okay. Uh, I think that's it. Cool. Daniel318.com. Yeah, the web, it's true. The website is uh, Daniel318.com. Some jackass got Daniel3.com before me. So that's all right. All right. Cool. Well, I will talk to you soon, Jacob. Thank you so much for joining. And I'm sure this will be another hit, just like they all are. Cool, man. Thanks for having me. All right. See ya. All right. Thanks, Jacob, for joining me today. And thanks to you, as always, for tuning in. Don't forget, blackbirdpodcast.com. Sign up with your email address so that you never miss an episode. And if you like what I do here, if you enjoy Blackbird and you'd like to get a little bit more of it, sign up with a credit card for $7 a month or $70 a year, and you will get full access to my complete unedited interviews, sometimes up to a month early. And with that, this is another episode of Blackbird in the Can. Thanks again for joining me. Until the next one, live free. (laughs) 